scripture reading this morning is for Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Rather sobering, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversions. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is God's word. A number of weeks ago, Norma came to me and said, you know, I could volunteer to read scripture, so welcome. <laughs> uh, what are we going to do with this? Last week, I promised you the wrath of God, and we'll get there. But first, to set our consideration in uh, greater context. The topic at hand, the topic at hand, don't let yourself be distracted by um, sensational even biblical sensational things. The topic at hand is the book of Romans, and the topic of the book of Romans is not the wrath of God. The topic of the book of Romans is the gospel. The gospel is a truth above all truths, not a conviction to be argued. And yes, for those, whether you're Christian or not, who say, well, that's convenient. You can just say the gospel is a truth above all truths. You can't argue about it. I understand the difficulty of that, but uh, there we are. The gospel works in such a way that it sets a question mark against all other truths, against our lives. There's a word that is uh, 
I don't know how often you've heard this word. You may have encountered it before. One of my favorite writers, Marilyn Robinson, who writes novels. She has just a beautiful novel uh, that has recently come out. But uh, she said she doesn't read novels. She just writes novels. She reads uh, science and philosophy. And, and she is, has become, she teaches writing at, um, in, where is it? Uh, I can't remember now. I'm drawing a blank. A university in the States where their writing uh, school is known as one of the best in the world. But some of her writing is not novels. It's, it's writing against, uh, in response to people who are called these neo-atheists, people who say, like, all religion is bad, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and others. And, and Marilyn Robinson uses the word totalizing, and she says that, that the, the religion is often cast as rejected because people see it as totalizing. You can take this religious faith and it explains everything and isn't that convenient. But she says, actually, that happens more often in the other ways, in worldviews that become totalizing and unassailable. She even talks about uh, Freud like that. Freud explains everything to some people, certainly to Freud. Capitalism, socialism, scientism, all of these isms. I don't know about veganism, but maybe that's part of a larger ism. And we would be told that the gospel sets a question mark against all of these things, and there may be good and bad in all of them. The gospel is the gospel regarding Jesus. So, as we reminded you last week, it's not first about you, thanks be to God, and it's not first about now. The gospel exists apart from you, and the gospel exists before now and after now. In Jesus, two worlds come together, the world of humanity and time and the world of divinity and eternity. And in this, this is the claim of the Christian gospel, in this coming together, we can know salvation. We can know life with God. Of course, the assumption is that we have need of the gospel, that this salvation is not and cannot be earned by us, but rather is accomplished by Jesus' incarnation his coming to earth that we just celebrated at Christmas time, and more particularly by Jesus' sacrifice. So that's it. So can we get to wrath now? Almost. Kind of a personal reflection is because you, you, you can preach sermons, but the, ho- the hope that you have sometimes as a minister is that the sermon is preached to you before and during and even by God's grace, sometimes after you preach it, just to give you a bit of a pass, I forget my own sermons too. So sometimes people come up to me and say, remember when you said a couple of weeks ago? And then you said, I'm going, don't remember. <laughs> uh, but that the sermon would be preached also to the preacher. And the things that have stood out for me, many of these that I just mentioned, but one of them is that we are reminded that Paul, the writer of Romans, is commissioned to present the gospel to the church in Rome. That's the context, a letter written to this group of people. And a good theologian said the commission is that Paul would declare something, now remember these words, I don't think they're on the screen, something that is new, unprecedented, joyful, and good. Now, in my own prayer reflection, those words have just come to life, and I'm realizing I'm praying, I'm I'm singing God's praises because I know the truth of this and can feel it, but I'm also asking God's blessing that I would continue to know that the gospel is always and ever. So every morning, I've been a Christian for years, but it's always new. It's always without precedent. It's always joyful. And it's always good.
Religion, this is no secret to some of you, can become, tradition can be great, but religion can also become old and tired and angry, more about yesterday than today. The gospel, while it exists before and after now, is always new and unlike religion. Now, this is a challenge to some of us as parents with our kids and some of you who who want loved ones to see the, the beauty of this gospel. The gospel can never be imposed. Go ahead and try it and tell me the results later. Actually, I'm, I'm convinced that trying to impose the gospel actually inadvertently diminishes people's ability to see the glory of it. It's not imposed, it's always received. Okay, so that's good. Now we can get to God's wrath. Hip, hip, hooray! It's a brush that the church can be painted with. And if you came as you know, a non-church person into the first little bit of this sermon, first of all, you'd be like, why is James so angry at people? But anyway, that fit in with the whole thing. I was there yesterday, so I'm okay. And it was awesome. Um, but I have to be. <laughs> um, it's a brush that the church can be painted with. Well, you would think, first of all, that. And then secondly, especially the scripture reading, you'd be like, wow, this is exactly what I thought church was. A brush that the church can be painted with is that it's mostly about, you know, God can't wait to get you. To quote, I try not to do this often, but it's, it's worthy of it. To quote the, Simpson in epi- the Simpsons in episode many years ago when one character said to the other, where have you been? La- where were you last week? And the other character said, I think it was the pastor's wife, said, oh, we were off at Bible camp learning how to be more judgmental. Uh, playing with that image. So wrath, wrath, and more wrath, and here we go. In this text, it starts with the wrath of God being revealed. What I want you to see, and what I've put on the slide for you here, is I'm going to contend. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to make you upset more. First it's wrath, and now it's like, how long is church going to be? My, usually I have like four pages of notes. I got six. So off we go. Um, I prayed about it, and it's fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, you get a little bit... I've got to give you some provisos of how to listen to the sermon. Because you can listen to it improperly, in my mind, and and get completely off base. There's two fundamental ways that we will miss, actually even more than mishearing the sermon, mishearing the text. The first is that we are driven by a misunderstanding of the wrath of God that has been handed to us by these conceptions in the church and in, in the world. So that the wrath of God is something like, and of course you can have movie titles or whatever in your mind, the wrath of Khan, the wrath of you, is where the wrath of God is if, Somebody has been doing something bad, or there's this enemy, and they've seemed to have their way for, for a while, but this, this wrath that's coming, it's like stored up, and one day there's going to be a price to be paid. That is a complete misconception of the wrath of God as presented in the book of Romans. Unfortunately, it's what you carried when you came in, because you couldn't help but do that because of the cultural baggage. The wrath of God is going to be revealed It's as if the the equivalent I could think of would be, and I would call this abusive, sometimes maybe because of weakness on the part of the parent or whatever, but two kids just cowering in fear, waiting for dad to come back because they know dad's going to give hell to one of them, and they both hope that it's the other one. That is a misunderstanding of the wrath of God, and we have paid a heavy, 
heavy price for continuing to perpetuate that even, even without meaning to. The second distraction is that you can be distracted by the list at the end. When Norma started talking about sex and all of this, you know, God handed them over to these shameful lusts, uh, it, it, these, these things can become very, very distracting. It's interesting that at the end of that list, you get disobedient to the parents which seems relatively minor, you know, compared to God-haters and slanderers and all these filthy whatever. Uh, you have to try as much as you can to not be distracted by those two things, to not put yourself in the place where you... Because the first one is to have a misconception of how, what the wrath of God is and means and how it works. And the second is to put yourself in the place of one of those two children, saying, well, one of us is going to get it, and I think it's going to be you because you're on that list. Here's what's going to happen if you carry one of those two things. You won't hear what the text says. So if you have in your mind right now, I'm glad Todd's going to talk about this list because there's some other people who sure need to hear this. God have mercy on your soul. Anyway, the structure of of what we're going to do. The second half of chapter 1, after introducing the glorious gospel... And it's nice to talk about the gospel in these terms like we did last week. Paul begins to outline the need for the gospel. In other words, here is what this gospel is, and he begins to define it, but the rest of the book will do so more. But then he has to, at the beginning, at least in how he presents his argument, say, here's why we all need the gospel. And in this this is where, in this context, the wrath of God comes up as a concept for consideration. In other words, the gospel we can see as glory and power and light and life everlasting. All the best and most beautiful things that we could ever imagine. Goodness, beauty, and truth. Life in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God, conversely, and the direction where it leads, is darkness, or to put a nice kind of evocative word to it, it is night. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, or in maybe some of your versions, ungodliness and wickedness. What it means, first of all, Paul's going to say, the wrath of God is revealed against depraved Gentiles. A lot of ministers like when they get to use words like depraved. But it's simply good old sin. The wrath of God is revealed against good old sin. It's the most common familiar kind in your understanding. It's limited, but this is a, a small bit of what we need to think. But there is truth in it. This is good old sin. Doing things that I shouldn't do. Lying to somebody for my own benefit. Doing something that I know will hurt somebody else, but it helps me. So, Or maybe even it just hurts them, and that's what I'm out to do. Good old fashioned sin. Breaking Ten Commandments. That's today's topic, how God's wrath is revealed against that kind of sin. But I have to tell you what's coming, because when you point out why not, and and the idea here is Paul's basically saying, there's people who never really give a second thought to God. And so you can think, well, none of them are here because we're in church. So it's possible to think, okay, this is, this is God's wrath against the non-religious, or as it works out for the non-religious. In a way, that's, that's one way that commentators think about it. That's the second half of chapter 1. But all of chapter 2, thanks be to God, is how God's wrath is revealed against religious people. Uh-oh. I mean, the non-religious get half a chapter, and the religious get a whole chapter. There's two two kinds of religious people that are mentioned particularly. One are people that, that 
can be summed up in the term critical moralizers. So what happens at the end of chapter 1, Paul basically, we just read it, gives this big list of terrible sins, right? And, and so all the religious people are like, yeah, dad's coming to get you. And then Paul says, but, and he turns to the religious people and says, but you who judge them, and he outlines how it works there. So critical moralizers need the gospel. And thirdly, I've called it, there's different words for this in different commentaries, but I call them, the, the in, I see this in myself at times, the lazy religious people who need the gospel. So not critical moralizers, but people who say, well, you know, God's on my side, and, and I even prayed to Jesus, and, and uh, so I'm all good. I can do anything I want. It's all fine. Uh, and Paul's going to say, look, you're not a critical moralizer. In fact, you roll your eyes at those people, those terrible judgmental religious people. But your religion has led you to the place where you just think you're just fine because you, you need the gospel. So that's the structure of chapters 1 and 2. If you look in your Bibles, if you have them, just so you know, we're going to get there soon. Everything changes at the beginning of chapter 3 when it says, But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. We're getting there, and it's absolutely beautiful. But first is the need of this how we need this gospel. And the truth is that all of these tendencies can be present in every one of us in a room like this. Every one of us can be given to just good old-fashioned sin. Every one of us can be given to be critical moralizers. And every one of us can be lazy religious people who just take for granted that, well, I guess God's on my side, so I'm good. The wrath of God is revealed against, and these are the words, all ungodliness and wickedness. First, depraved Gentiles. This is the part of us that seeks to live according only to the physical, emotional desires that we have. I like to make fun of the store Forever 21 because every time I say the name of the store, I laugh because it sounds like a curse to me. But apparently it's supposed to sound great. Forever 21. And I know that it's safe for me to make fun of it because I'll likely never shop there. I'm not the target market. My age and my body. But for some reason, my friend Rick Calhoun was told me that he was in Forever 21 over Christmas. Rick has three boys and a wife who's not 21. But anyway, I didn't ask Rick why he was there. Maybe he just walked by it. No, I think he was in it. And he said, I know you like to make fun of Forever 21. I was in there at Christmas time, and he said they actually had big banners all around the store with a slogan for, I guess, the Christmas season. And they, and they said, Forever 21 dash, I want everything. It's not just a poke at that store. And by the way, if you shop there and you love it and whatever, I'm all cool with that. What's outlined in the verses today is that this type of value in our lives, living according to our appetites and desires first and often only, leads to what is a great word. This becomes insatiable. There is no way to get everything. You just join the treadmill. But if you live only according to these desires, well, I can think of about six TV shows that I like and a number of movies. Not, not like church things at all. In fact, some of them I would not want you to know that I watch. So there you go. But that actually the key point is that if you live only according to your desires, it, le- it leads to just this darkness. So Paul says... Depraved Gentiles who live according only to, to, this, to the desires need the gospel. Let me draw it out for you. 
The gospel is that life comes from... Oh, sorry, not enough of that. The gospel is that life comes from God. And as we choose self rather than God, we are less than fully alive. Eternal life is not just about one day. It's about life now, abundant life. As you choose self over God, you are, in in scriptural terms, less than fully alive. It's not first about the behavior, the sin. This is a trick that's been played on us in the church and we've perpetuated it by acting as if the sin is only the behavior. But the first part is our choice to be apart from God. And then we don't see the question mark that's set against us. And then we can set up anything in our lives, even good things, apart from God. See how this works? So my work. It doesn't matter what your work is. You could work in a church. But any other kind of work as well, you can set your work up apart from God. Your relationships can be apart from God. This doesn't mean that you have to, as a couple, have devotions every night. I don't. But if you, but you could, you could have devotions every night and still set your relationship up apart from God. Security, where you think your your kind of sense of being okay in this world will come from, you can set that up apart from God. Verses 19 to 21 make it clear. Though God is made manifest and has been made manifest in the world, He is no longer held as the highest as that which is glorified. or he, So he can, you can still talk about God, you can still, in a sense, worship God, but God is not that object or that um, event of what you glorify in your life. We have to move away from thinking that the Christian faith is defined firstly by right and wrong. We were told that right from the Garden of Eden, that that was the problem, that we thought that way. So as we turn from glorifying God and we put other things, even good things, in that place, here's how the text works. Here's how the wrath of God works itself out. Not as an angry, abusive parent. But but God's wrath works itself out that as we turn from glorifying God and begin to glorify other things, other people, work, security, whatever it is, this is what the Bible says. You can argue with it if you like. That's fine. Our hearts become darkened. Our minds become senseless. It's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel comes and brings life as we receive. We live according only to our appetites and we get darkness and death. Ken Bell, when we were talking about this this week, because we always bat our sermons around back and forth in the office here, and Ken said, you know, it's like the prodigal son, that if you wanted to talk about the wrath of God and the story of the prodigal son, it's when the father hands the son the inheritance and says, okay, Now, how different is that than can't wait to just do you in? So for some, you can think of this kind of sin in terms of debauchery and hedonism and physical pleasure or conspicuous living, how you want to show off your life and what you've achieved to other people. But it's also in good things, accomplishment, work, education, vocation, Leisure, physical health, nutrition, and fitness. We can live by these means. We begin these things, and you have to, you have to look at your own life to see if this is the case. Because it's, you probably should have many or most of these things in your life. But if they become that which you glorify, that's now we're onto what I'm talking about. 
And I think that what we do in our world is we act as if these things, you can pick yours, accomplishment, work, education, vocation, physical health, whatever it is, these are the things that will give us security and meaning. And then the general way it works in our culture is if we can kind of shore those things up, then, then what we're shoring them up against is, well, if you're non-religious, fate, but fate is a religious word, by the way. If you're non-religious, you know, if I'm just, if I can get these things shored up enough, then I don't have to worry that I'm going to be in trouble and my life's going to fall apart because, you know, I've got enough money or I've saved up enough or whatever it is, or I'm healthy enough. We glorify those things to be the things that we think can give us that. This becomes our lives, defined not by God and certainly not by gospel, but by human things, our desires, Accomplishment, work, status, education. You can add to this list, and I should have these two on separate slides. Well, I'm going to just name one first because I don't want to give away the second until I change the slide. You can add to this list religion. You can glorify religion instead of God. You've met people like this, haven't you? You know, don't look around at the church and think who they might be. I don't know who they are in here. We're pretty cool here, so that's okay. But there's some people who walk around with a religious identity condemning everybody else. They have certainty. They have experience. They have knowledge. And they shake their heads a lot at the world. Now, glorifying religion means that the thing which prevents you from seeing God is religion. (laughs) See how this works? Now, you're not ready for the next one, but here it is. You can do this with family. Where you glorify family to the point that family becomes the absolute end-all and be-all. I think it's the virtue left in our culture. And it is a virtue to, to love your family, to do everything for them. To want, I'm not speaking against that. I'm not speaking against loving your family. If you love God, you will love your family more, not less. You don't have to choose. That's, that's not, I did that again. It's not what, that's not what this is about. If I love God, I won't love my family. Don't, I'm not that simplistic on this. What you're not supposed to do is glorify your family. There's a difference. Or glorify family even as a concept. Some people can't see God as we should, or they should, Because that object of glorification in our lives has become our family. And the text will will outline now a progression, a downward one and a negative one. We choose life apart from God. God leaves us to ourselves. We have left ourselves with only ourselves. And then we have to live, because we, we like things like meaning and purpose, we have to live as if meaning and purpose and peace can be found in self, not in God. So, which in, in Christian terms can't happen. So then what we do is we take meaning and we project it onto the very things that we hold important. Think of, I'm, I'm going to harp on family for a bit. Because if you're glorifying your family but things aren't working out with your kids, you are devastated. But if you don't glorify family, you're much more able to say, God, I don't like this. Show me what it means to be a parent in this situation. When my child is either, you know, everything from disobedient to in great pain to whatever it might be. We're left only with ourselves. We project meaning into these things, particularly money, happiness, and success. And the wrath of God, not an angry, abusive parent waiting to get you, the wrath of God is saying, 
That's what you've chosen. Uh, I like a writer named David Foster Wallace, um, a tragic story, his life and death. But he was known, I've quoted him a couple times in sermons before, he was known as the next great American novelist. I think he was 46 when he died. He's a hero of the hipster, super smart culture. Uh, And certainly not a religious writer by any means, though he writes with incredible insight into religion and spirituality. Uh, And he says this, if you can't see it, I'll read it anyway. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. You know what Foster Wallace has just described? The wrath of God. Not intentionally, I don't think. But it's a description, and it's a good one nonetheless. Anything else will eat you alive. So you go to verse 22 and following, and the progression continues. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And instead of God, once you you move away from glorifying God, instead of God, you need to make images of other things to worship. And in the text, it says birds and beasts and creeping things, things that they made. God gave them over to these things. Um, and uh, here we have, you probably can't see it, but on one side it's, it's idols, like idols made out of stone and wood, and on the other side is an iPhone, which of course could never be an idol, technology in general. We just keep doing it, and we think how stupid people are who used to worship idols. God gave them over to these things, and in a sense, what the text says, actually more than in a sense, it says it directly, these things then took over their lives. Oscar Wilde, again, not speaking from the Christian faith, but Oscar Wilde said, when the gods, small g, wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. They give us what we want. It's something like that. First, worshipping images and idols made of wood and gold and steel, and more recently of current technology or entertainment or nation or race or political ideology, all the things that we have made ourselves. And the rest simply plays out until we finally get to the end to, uh, to all this debauchery and, and to talk about sex. Paul uses this example. Paul uses the example of shameful lusts, women exchanging natural natural relations for unnatural ones, men doing the same. So it's clear, right? The text is about homosexuality. Uh, I'm going to say this. Again, you can disagree disagree with me. If you do that, you've fallen into the danger that I told you at the beginning of the sermon. The text is not about homosexuality. And I... Okay, I'll say it. I'm tired of, of... of sometimes thinking that there's a litmus test in Christianity in certain things. You're on this side or this side. That, to me, has never helped me in my faith and in my seeking of the true gospel. 
But it is true, unfortunately, that Christian leadership has led, because of texts like this and how we use them, to try to, okay, I know what to make of that guy because he thinks this. If you do that, you've abused the text. That's my saying. I'm telling you that. So why is this there? Let me show you how, well, I just did, how that, how we can abuse a portion of scripture like that. If this leads you to thinking, well, dad's coming to get them. I just say, why do you? I have a thing in my mind. Did I tell you this last week? And I, it's a, it's a, it's a curse word and I won't say it. So I'll just use the word jerk instead. But it's a guiding thing for me. If reading the Bible makes, if, if you read the Bible a lot and when you're done, you're more of a jerk than when you started, you've probably got it wrong. And if you can just say, well, those are the ones who are going to get it, it's clear. I'm not talking about right and wrong and what's, I'm just saying you're missing the point of how this argument is being presented. The progression is clear. The example for us is clear. Humanity chose apart from God and our minds became senseless, our hearts became darkened and foolish. We worshipped what we made and then here's the key term. We began to deify our own desires. Deify our own desires. Our desires took the place of that which God used to have in our lives. That's why Paul gives these, gives these examples, which at that time would have made perfect and good sense. And may now. I'm not making a comment on that. But the point of the text is that we deify our desires to the point, and now I'm reading a... I'm I'm quoting a a writer who's writing in the 1920s on this text. We deify our desires to the point where our lives become totally erotic and everything becomes libido. Now, just look around and see how that's happened. Look around and see if that happening is marked primarily by homosexuality. I would argue no. I would say everything becoming libido can certainly be true within homosexuality. But it can also certainly be true within heterosexuality. So please say, you know, and if you're going to do litmus test on me now and go, I don't know, I think he might be saying he's so... I just have to leave you with that. Using sexuality as an example, what it means is that it becomes not about human connection, but only about physical desire. The person, the other person, is no longer a person, but someone who can just meet your appetite. Now, hear this. This can happen in marriage. Of course. So for me and for you, the question should be not, is this what this other person is doing right or wrong? But rather, how is this progression happening in my life? The progression described here, that the wrath of God is revealed. We become unable to reckon with anything except feelings, experiences, and events, even at times religious ones, and often not even with actual people. This is not only a religious description, but this is described over and over and over again in secular writing and thinking. An Australian uh, professor, I read a book of hers a number of years ago called Blubberland, Elizabeth Farrelly, not coming from a Christian perspective, I don't think at all. But she outlined it a little bit. I've got the notes there. She said, here's what's happening in our culture. First, we're faced with too much choice. So there's 200 kinds of toothpaste. 
So you're faced with too much choice, which leads to what she calls, mis- and other thinkers call, miswanting. Because there's so much choice, we don't really know what we're supposed to even need or even want. Then she outlines from another uh, philosopher, I think Raymond Tallis is his name, he describes what's called a fourth hunger. He says, I'm going to get the first three right, he says, we all have a hunger for survival, pleasure, and recognition, but the fourth hunger, he called it the highest hunger, is a hunger for connection, human connection, and meaning. So she says, we're faced with this barrage of choices. We don't know what to choose. We miswant, so we make a choice, but it doesn't satisfy the fourth hunger, and we just go back into the system. She's again describing what the wrath of God is like, but in purely secular terms. Now against this, against this, we have, we've got a few couple minutes here to end and take communion. Six pages, not bad. Against this, we have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it is. I gave it two points last week. I'll give it three this week. This is a summary of a New Testament scholar named Simon Gathercole. The Son of God emptied himself and came into the world in Jesus Christ becoming a servant. He died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice so that, and this is my addition, so that this progression into darkness would not have to have its final say. He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, and thirdly, he rose from the grave as the first fruits of a whole renewed world. You should be in absolute awe and joy at the word first fruits. Some of you don't know what it means, and I'll tell you. I can't I can't define it as much as I can describe it with this picture. This was taken last February in front of my house, our house. And there was snow for a few days last February, and these flowers in the spring come up, and they're just everywhere. Someone else, before we lived there, took care of the yard so it looks nice. We just, we're just managers. And these flowers just keep coming up, no matter how badly we seem to treat the. And there's snow. And when you see them, this is what first fruits means. The spring's coming. And it's gray, and it's dark too early too late in the morning and too early in the evening. But those are going to open up. And you're going to walk down Grand Boulevard and it's just going to be alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a renewed, redeemed world. That is what is going to happen. And it's beautiful. The progression of life apart from God is the opposite. You get yourself. And the progression leads to no life. But there is instead offered to us gospel, the world redeemed and renewed in Jesus Christ our Lord, and one day the spring will come. And your life can be defined by that rather than by life apart from God, which is in the end no life at all. In the gospel, two worlds come together and a light has dawned and we can be awakened to conversion from our senseless foolishness to a growing awareness of what God is doing 
And so we take communion. And I have this great word for taking communion or for receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. If you've never done it before, it's receiving Jesus that brings you into this life of the gospel. And that's the word, receive. You're going to receive this bread. This communion is for anybody who knows Jesus Christ or wants to. Jesus Christ died on a cross. And before he went to the cross the night before in that upper room at the Passover meal, he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body given for you. Do you see the difference of these two things, the wrath of God or life of the gospel? This bread is my body given for you. This cup is is the cup of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and eat, receive, and know the life that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray, and then I'll um, have the communion to hand out by the ushers. We'll do the bread, uh, the cup right after the bread, uh, and you can take it as you receive it. You don't have to wait for, for others around you. Let's pray. Father God, give us ears to hear. And now may we see, may we get past... Um, lists and right and wrong and we see in this text how depraved we can become how depraved we can become not oh yeah those other people sure have but we see also Lord Jesus that this is opening to us the life of the gospel that we can have life instead of darkness light instead of darkness and life instead of death may we receive today Bless this communion as we receive it. Your body, Lord Jesus, given for us. Your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.